And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. We've got a great show for you today. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and it is a two-interview show. First, in a couple seconds, we'll be chatting with Jennifer from the On to Ottawa. I was going to say campaign, but we can find out if it's a campaign or a, I mean, it's March, I guess, in some ways. But we'll chat about that in just a second. And then after that conversation, we'll be joined by David Gray Donald, who is the publisher and editorial director of The Grind. And there we're chatting about how media is doing generally and then the role of media and social movements and exactly what you can do to support his work with The Grind. But before we do that, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Okay, thank you so much, Stefan. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm on Squamish Musqueam Slavertooth territory, unceded, occupied lands. And yeah, it's great to be chatting with you. Amazing. And so for folks who have not heard of On to Ottawa, what is it and how did it start? So we're part of a global movement of ordinary people who have, you know, just come to a place in our lives where we've seen what the urgency is. And, and so we've just decided, well, we got to we got to get shit done here because, you know, it's the scientists are all pretty much all saying it's either we change now or we die. Yeah, so we've just sort of found each other through, you know, the the magic of of the internet and, you know, being in the parks and, and in various organizations that we've worked with before. You know, there are people who worked with Extinction Rebellion, some people who were working with Save All Growth, other campaigns. And yeah, so that's who we are, grassroots group of average everyday people who are just wanting to save the children and the children's children and the children's children's children from from extinction. Amazing. And so one of the things I found interesting about this campaign is that your take the name comes actually from a previous historical trend back in 1935. So can you tell us a little bit about the history behind On to Ottawa? Yeah, well, okay, we're going a little a little above my pay grade here in terms of the research on the name. But yeah, there was a a worker strike that decided to go on to Ottawa on the train and you know, it was basically a, you know, a, a grassroots workers organization looking to be able to feed themselves and their families. We've also had we did have the abortion caravan where a group of women went to to Ottawa to demand the right to abortion. So there there are a few instances of of this happening of of the the whole nation sort of like getting together and this kind of trip across and people joining in the capital city where the decisions are made, right? Yeah, we need to go to the place where they make the decisions and so that's sort of what what we've come to, yeah. Right. And it's my understanding that the idea is folks are coming in from across Canada to Ottawa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have a number of people from the West Coast, from so-called Vancouver, Victoria, Nanaimo. We do have a few people from Saskatchewan. I think we might have a person or two coming from Alberta. And then there are a fair number of people in 
in Toronto and the Toronto area and in and around Ottawa as well. Awesome. And so as with any sort of movement like this, I'm sure you, you, I know for a fact that you have a few demands that you're mm-hmm. sort of making of the government. And so can you tell us a little bit about those those demands? Yeah. So we have a very a, an emergency demand, something that we think is is should already be happening if if we had any sort of common sense. And that's a, a, a 50,000 person national firefighting service. Right now, it, firefighting is the individual province's domain, and we don't have nearly enough resources. I mean, provinces have been cutting cutting back on the, the dollars that they're putting into firefighting. And, you know, now when it's, we're in an emergency situation, then all then it's, you know, we're way over budget and, and we're having to bring people in from, you know, Mexico and Central America and all, you know, all over the place we're bringing in firefighters from. And we know that this is going to be the reality every year as the as the climate heats up. You know, one of our people lives in Squamish and is a roofer and also a climber, a rock climber. And he remembers, he's been in Squamish for about 30 years, and he remembers when the hottest day out climbing or roofing was 27 degrees. And last year it was 42 degrees. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's in, 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 you know, 20 to 30 years. So we know that there's an emergency. We know it's not going to get colder next year. So the reality is these fires are going to be happening everywhere in Canada. The other thing that, you know, we obviously need in terms of this firefighting, I just read the book Fire Weather, which looks at the the fires in Fort McMurray. And one of the problems they had in Fort McMurray was it was not a city fire and it was not just a forest fire, but those two merged, right? (laughs) And so then it's really difficult for the city firefighters and the forest firefighters, you know, to have to, to work together, obviously, because they're too, you know, they, they've been working in, in different conditions. And so with a 50,000 person fully trained firefighting squad, national firefighting squad that can be deployed anywhere with the specialized training needed for those for those situations based on the last few few fires, we have few mega fires that we've had. And what people have learned from those fires, you know, then we can get into like the water bombers and we can also get to those firefighting crews really working on the ground during the fall and winter seasons, removing potential kindling for future fires. So we really need to put a huge investment in this if we want to save a little bit of our forests and, and, you know, save our children from having their lungs damaged at a very, very early age from being exposed to so much smoke. So that's the that's the the emergency demand. But then the long term demand, you know, looking to the future and how we're going to, you know, get off fossil fuels and save our forests. And and, you know, I don't know if it's possible to stay under one point five degrees of warming now, but let's say in some sort of ideal world that Mother Nature rebounds when we stop, you know, killing her, then what we'd like is a citizen's assembly which is a random assortment of citizens who haven't been co-opted by corporations like our current government officials obviously have been. And these they would make recommend recommendations to the government after listening to to the science. Um, and what, you know, the engineers who've been trained to to put these solutions into practice and they're just not getting listened to. But a citizens assembly generally, generally speaking, makes, you know, a more reasonable choice than people who have had 
their campaigns kind of paid for by by big oil. Yeah. So I, I, just, I want to get to, into both those demands a little bit deeper for a second, if you can. But one thing I find so interesting about the point in the terms of firefighters is that recently I was out, out west and we were driving through the sort of interior of BC mm-hmm. and just sort of in the middle of, I don't want to say nowhere, but we weren't close to any major cities. Right. And there was a truck just engulfed in flames. Holy shit. By the side of the road. Yeah, it was nuts. Oh. And and there were a few people sort of standing around it. No one seemed injured. And the, the CIA had obviously been called. Like It had been sort of dealt with in the terms of having people be right. there to make sure the people are fine. Right. But we happened to be taking this drive with a the friend of mine who it was is a volunteer firefighter out mm-hmm. in out in in, in 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 the interior of BC and he was explaining that basically if a fire like that gets started sort of in the middle there's actually no one to take care of it right. because it's on it, it's not under the jurisdictions of either yeah. of the local municipalities and all the municipalities you know they you imagine not only there but everywhere in Canada are underfunded so they're not going to just like just expend extra expense to send somebody out to take care of a, a fire yeah. that's not in their jurisdiction. And the province obviously doesn't have sort of the capacity mm-hmm. to ensure that all of their roadways don't have things on fire beside them. And right. so like I and my partner who are, who are also in the car were just sort of baffled at the reality that this car was just going to burn to the ground, basically. And that was the only answer. And it seems so normal to this volunteer firefighter. But you know, they their job has has been to been sent out to these places, and yet that strikes me as something that is like like I don't know if you can even solve that exact problem even with fifty thousand well, extra volunteers, but obviously the need for more resourcing on firefighting has been true and clear really across yeah, the board. Absolutely, and I mean, I'm not an expert in firefighting or how to deal with these things or anything like that. But the what I think is the common sense part of me says, okay, what you know, we have fifty thousand people. There should be watch watch houses all, you know, all around the country in these forested areas. So, or at least the you know, satellite, the satellite cameras or something, and monitor cameras, letting us know when something goes on fire. Or there's a center, you know, with you have these little hubs where if you see a car on fire. <laughs> You could call the latest, the you know, the local fire center to have somebody come out with whatever they would use to to put that out. But yeah, maybe fifty thousand people isn't enough. You know, like maybe we need a hundred thousand people. I don't know because we have we live in a country that has a vast wilderness. You know, the boreal forest is is huge, and it is the last. What I've been told is the last true carbon sink left in the world. And if we lose that, <laughs> which it looks like we're probably going to, that has is going to have devastating effects. So maybe we should start this this serious mitigation. But that's quite shocking, you know, and I think that's the kind of story that that people need to hear. Like if a fire starts, it takes a long time before we figure out whose responsibility it is to put that fire out. Yeah, exactly. and. It does sort of strike you in terms of the difference between how you would treat an emergency, how you wouldn't, right? Like, how often are we, how 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 lackadaisical are we about trying to decide, you know, whose jurisdiction to solve some of these problems are? Yeah, you know, 
in, in many different areas. Again, I would argue that's one of the biggest failings in Canadian society a little bit mm-hmm. is how much we just like pretending it's someone else's jurisdiction mm-hmm. and let the problem continue to get worse and worse and worse rather than say, fix the problem first and then fight about yeah. money later. Well, yeah, yeah, but that's not like how rampant capitalism works, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's very fair. <laughs> and um, most people, like, there are people, so the group of people who are going to Ottawa, like, they're the kind of people that when they see an emergency, they see, they're like, okay, this is an emergency, we have to do this. And then, you know, most of the people are like, you know, whatever, they're going about their day-to-day business, and they're not really thinking about it, or they're using you know, some strategies to suppress themselves from thinking about it because it's too overwhelming, right? I've heard it referred to as a hyper object. Like people could conceive of like an inch or, you know, a foot or a mile, but they can't conceive of the like, you know, the size of the universe, like at that magnitude. And it's the same with an emergency. People can conceive of their house going on fire or they can conceive of a typhoon, but they can't fully wrap their head around like the entire world becoming uninhabitable. So, you know, there are some brains who process it more easily. And I guess those are the ones who are going to <laughs> going to Ottawa to to stir up the, the public so that people start to get it. For sure. And so for the second demand in terms of citizens assembly, mm-hmm. it's slowly gotten itself into, I think, some activism circles and people begin to know what is was meant by that. But can you tell me and tell the audience what is meant by citizen assembly and why you see it so important. So it's sort of like jury duty. Okay, the reason that we have juries is like it's a a group of of your peers, right, who are deciding on whether you are guilty or not guilty of the crime that you're, you're being charged with. And the reason that we have juries is because you get that Uh, Because you get that representative population, it's not, you know, it's not the same types of people making the the decision on on these big cases. So like a judge, for example, is not your average citizen. So it puts it in the hands of people who are willing to look to listen impartially to the evidence and then make a decision. So a citizen's assembly is based on that same concept, right? That if you get average people who have no skin in the game of keeping burning fossil fuels and have skin in the game of like, saving their own lives and their children. And then they get experts coming in telling them like, this is the problem. This is the magnitude of the problem. This is what we recommend doing to deal with this problem. And and, and they listen, then they're like, okay, well, that they're probably going to do things that make the most sense. There was a discussion. I think, I can't, I think it was Just Stop Oil that did it on Citizens Assembly. And they talked about citizens' assemblies having people who are very from very, very opposite sides of, you know, the cultural milieu or economic status or, you know, whatever. And they gave some examples of people who, you know, people who came from were radically different in their outlook. Some people who are incredibly conservative and people who were incredibly, let's say, you know, small L liberal in many ways. And once they'd sat together for something like 50 meetings or, you know, 65 hours, I forget how long they really, they sat or they got around together and and deliberated these issues. By the end of it, people were really understanding, you know, really understanding people's experience and where they're coming from. And, you know, these people became like the closest of friends and, you know, were making very responsible decisions. I know Ireland Ireland is using it right now for biodiversity, 
And they used it to get abortion rights. I mean, pretty recently, which is a little bit shocking, but, but yeah, they, they used a citizens assembly and they are becoming popular in places because, you know, like I said, these are people who don't have the financial backing from the fossil fuel industry. And they're actually they're when you get in and, and you're just sitting with the scientists and the people with all the solutions and the, this is the problem, this is how you deal with it. Then they're also not, you know, being overwhelmed with the rhetoric that's coming from big corporations that they they don't care if the world dies. They just want their shareholders to make more money. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's so interesting and so useful. One of the reasons why Citizen Assembly, I think, works is because you don't really know who it's going to be, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like you know, there's systems in place to, in some ways, co-opt people as they gain power, which is one yeah. of the reasons why it feels like anyone who ends up gaining power ends up having a very limited set of options. You know, I was talking to Julie Levin about this in a couple weeks ago about how it feels like every environment minister in Canada suddenly remembers that the oil industry is bad the moment they're no longer in yeah. the position. And so I know, right? It's really frustrating. Yeah. But with Citizen Assembly, you know, it's it is random people, right? It is yeah. truly just a random set of people yeah. who have not necessarily lived through the set of experiences to then become sort of picked up in those ways. Right. And so yeah, so I do think it's a important and interesting, especially in these difficult or when big changes have to happen. You know, I know that yeah. the, that's the other way is that the other thing that people are really pushing for a citizen assembly to do is electoral reform, because mm -hmm. you can't really trust the system to change itself when every yeah. political party might have its own type of electoral reform right. that would benefit it. Give yeah. that up to some other body and let them give right. a recommendation. A lot easier right. way to get rid of a terrible first best supposed system. But that's yeah. besides the point of this current conversation. Um, so with those goals, and again, with what do you plan on doing when people reach Ottawa? What's the sort of activity that will be happening as upon arrival? Well, that is, that is currently being decided by our action coordinators, but it is a civil disobedience campaign. So there will be disruption to everyday life. And, you know, I was I was out for lunch with with my mom the other day and she was, you know, she was talking to me about this and she was, you know, very concerned about like blocking people from going about their day to day business. And I was like, well, you know, we've all been like waving signs and signing petitions and making appointments with our MLA and our MP. We've been doing that for years and nothing is changing. In fact, it's getting worse. So I think we absolutely do need to like take a break from business as usual and think, OK, like it's an emergency right now. Let's all take a break from business as usual, like we did in the pandemic. Right. We radically changed almost overnight. You know, like I remember the day I went downtown to go to the to go to a play and it was the day right before everything shut down. And I was like, OK. Things are radically changing almost overnight. It's not precedented for this to happen, but we have to interrupt business as usual. And I don't think we can rely on <laughs> another deadly virus just like sweeping in to do it, right? Like we, and nor do we want to. Well, our goal is to save many, 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 many lives. 
by just like stopping, put a pause on business as usual and think about the path forward that we need to go, that we need to take in order to, yeah, save the children from extinction. So for folks who are interested in learning more and and getting involved, how can they do that? Well, they can go to our website at ontoottawa.ca. So O-N and then the number two and then ottawa.ca. And they can go to talks and click on talks. And there are both virtual and in-person talks, both in so-called Vancouver and out east in various places. And there's also two online talks per week. So that's the first step is to go there unless people know, look, I'm or if they're not in the country or they're not going to be in the country or they know that they're going to be way too busy to to get out on the street, then they can go to donate and and they can donate the funds because saving the children from extinction is going to cost a little bit of money. So we've probably, you know, all the people working for that are doing running this campaign and executing this campaign, we're all we're all volunteering. So we're not getting paid for this and we're quite happy to volunteer to do this. But there are expenses that come along the way, you know, paying for the website, paying for flyers, all that kind of stuff that that we it it just costs the the costs start to add up after a while. Yeah, for sure. And so as we come towards the close of the interview, I'm wondering if you have any sort of last thoughts or any last calls to action you might want to share with our audience. Yeah, well, historically, the most successful means of affecting change has been peaceful, nonviolent, direct action, civil disobedience, peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedience. We've seen that with the Freedom Riders. We've seen it with Gandhi's Salt March. We've seen it, you know, we've seen it. And just law, just statistically, it's it's better likely that a nonviolent civil disobedience campaign will be the most effective in creating enough social tension so that, you know, the government comes to the table. And and like I said, all of the people I've met through this campaign are people who I would absolutely count on in an emergency. They're people I do count on in an emergency. And one as part of the, the comments that I'm hearing, I, I just was on CKNW talking about the fire risk in Stanley Park and and, and stopping car traffic through the park. And the response from a lot of people of comments is just like, oh, she's crazy. Oh, that's insane. But nobody has the data the data to say how this is going to get solved if we don't do this. I would love for there to be another way. I would love for to just be able to go out and wave a sign outside my MLA's office or get another petition together to solve this problem. But unfortunately, it's just, you know, nobody listens until we stop business as usual. So for people who are upset that business as usual will be disruptive, all I can do is I can really apologize and say we have really tried every other way to save your children. And I'm a teacher. I've sent over 5,000 kids out into the world. And I feel so guilty that we've done this to their future. And I hope people listening will either come and join us or donate or at least, you know, really dig deep to understand that we're doing this because it's a, it's a last chance at human survival. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been Jennifer, a volunteer with the On to Ottawa campaign. Really appreciate you being here and good luck. Thank you so much, Stefan. And yeah, thanks for doing what you do. Thank you so much. And right. so he, 
we here at the Green Majority will be heading off onto a music break, and then we'll be, we will be back with David Gray Donald of The Grind. So stay with us, and we'll chat real soon. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harpinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps you've got us on the podcast, which anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you haven't checked them out, do so. They are truly great and still growing. I am here with friend of the show and the publisher and editorial director of The Grind, David Gray Donald. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I should also note that astute listeners will remember that David Gray Donald was also the one of the authors of The End of This World, which we just finished our book club on. So first of all, I just want to say kudos to you, Dave, and your team. Greatly enjoyed the book. We've had a number of listeners actually message us afterwards wanting to find out where they can find it. And so I'd be curious as a opening question, actually, how has the response to the book been? It's been great. And I super appreciate you doing the book club. I was just listening to the last episode, closing out the book. And yeah, people have especially liked those last couple of chapters because it is, as you, as you talked about, like tangible, uplifting, optimistic, but like really concrete about strategy and ways to think through what actions we can take today to build the world that we want to see tomorrow. But yeah, we've done events in lots of cities, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Hamilton. We're doing Burlington the fall. Then we did some prairie events, Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatoon, Edmonton. And it's been selling well and great conversations in all those places. And we want to keep it going. So we've got a few more things coming up and really excited that people are reading it. That's what you always want as, a, as an author. Amazing. Yeah, I, I noticed that it keeps bouncing back up the bestsellers list of the independent books. And so that's awesome. And is it fair to say that if people, folks are listening to this and want to organize something in their community that may not have seen it, that they can reach out? Please do. Yes. Uh, let's do in the show notes some uh, contact info, but you can contact the publisher between the lines, a local publisher in Toronto. They've been doing great books for 40 something years. So get in touch with between the lines and we can make something happen. Amazing. All right. So with that positivity, let's dive into something a little less, <laughs> something going a little less well, which is the media in Canada 
most generally, and especially, well, actually, I would argue the media in Canada is doing worse than independent media, but maybe you'll have a different take on this. But, you know, you have recently been, you've been a part of the media sphere for quite some time. You are the former publisher of Briar Patch magazine and have been in around a bunch of different types of media outlets. And The Grind is your most latest one, which we'll get to in a second. But before we do, can you give us your take on the overview of media generally, especially with the news around Bill C-18 and a potential blocking of Canadian media outlets and how, even how that bill came to pass. So how do you see the sort of state of media writ large? The big question, and it's important, but I think it's certainly in a, a transformation. People talk about a crisis a lot and there's elements of a crisis, but it's been so prolonged. Like the, the, the big thing that the giant media companies talk about is the decline in advertising revenues, especially for print. So like the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, the majors have really seen their ad revenues decline and it's made newsrooms smaller. Independent media hasn't really survived on advertising, except for the alt-weeklies like Now Magazine or the coast out in or the Georgia Strait. So the the indies and some of the majors now are relying more on reader subscriptions and reader support, also moving towards more philanthropy in media. But basically the, the same trends are in existence. So the major media tends to be very liberal which means proposing small changes to the, the sort of colonial capitalist system and that those small reforms will, you know, make positive change and that's all we need to do. So the Toronto Star is, is proudly a liberal paper, largely been aligned with the Liberal Party. It's the, by far the biggest paper in Toronto. It breaks a lot of news. And it, the newsroom's a lot smaller, but it, it still does that. And most of the TV news follows a similar sort of line, but they've been doing a bit more coverage of sort of more left left perspectives and grassroots organizing, um, because I think there's been a, a, a trend of people wanting that, seeing that that's valuable. And there's just a lot of unrest as well. But the biggest growth that I think we've seen as the major media have been shrinking is both on the left and right is some of these online right-wing publications that have exploded in popularity and then the left ones have been growing more much more slowly but they're doing really really amazing work like press progress breaking a lot of stories about you know the shenanigans and terrible dealings of the right-wing politicians Doug Ford's sort of underfunding of healthcare and privatization schemes and you know you're in the harbinger podcast network and there's some really great podcasts there. There's a really lively network, but everyone's really severely underfunded. So there's, there's only so much we can do. There's not really any left publication, except for a couple locals that are doing consistent news coverage. So our news coverage still comes from the major, you know, Toronto Star or, or CBC, which follows the other media. Like in terms of they, they sort of follow a similar ideological line. So there, that's still a big gap in, can, in Canada for news coverage that, that isn't from these big corporate outlets. And Post Media is 
sort of the worst of among them, the, the big ones. They're churning out, it's mostly opinion now, churning out just a huge amount of right-wing whatever from Rex Murphy, whoever else they, they want to find. Yeah, exactly. And, but what's a bit interesting for me to sort of watch has been in the last few years, as newsrooms have sort of decreased in size from some of these larger places, smaller publications like The Hoser here in Toronto or The Narwhal, you know, National Observer, some of these other ones that have sort of started popping up in a way to try to fill that gap and try to show that if you do real news and do intentional community building with the people who are infected by your news, there is a space for this, but it is very different from the ad revenue-based experience, I think. Yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, those are both great examples and people should definitely support the Hoser and, and the Norwell of um, media outlets that are, yeah, just taking it into their own hands. The Narwhal noticed that there was almost no dedicated environment reporting in the country and they went out and did it and they've been really successful at getting reader support and also foundation. So yeah, there's there's been a lot of innovation, which is really great to see. And uh, yeah, the folks at the Hoser were were part of launching the grind and Shannon Karanko and Kevin Tagabon are, are still contributing editors to the grind. We'll, we'll get to in a minute. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So before with that excellent tease, I have one more question before we get to exactly what the grind is and what we're doing in that or what you're doing in that sort of larger sphere. But the last thing I want to do to set the scene here is talk about how important media can be to social movements in the same way that you sort of have brought your experience within the media to the grind. You also have a history working within social movements, as your book obviously indicates, and you work with resource movement and, and pieces like that. And so I'm curious if you can identify or talk about how you see the role of media in supporting social movements and how that infrastructure works. Yeah, good question. So what what we tend to get in media, I'll start with what is bad reporting, I think, is that Change happens from elected officials and they act and then we deal with the consequences. And it what happens is a lot of activism and, and social movement work gets erased because it takes a lot to, to create power and push politicians to act. So, you know, some people say like Richard Nixon created the environmental protections in the 70s, which is you know, really obscuring the history, which is there was an enormous social movement pushing for environmental regulation and like doing direct actions and, and all kinds of things. And then Nixon felt, you know, he had to give something. So what a lot of social movement connected media does tells the stories of what's happening in the activist communities. So Briar Patch, for example, which I worked at was founded as a anti-poverty newsletter. So it was people who were on, you know, sort of employment insurance and or other disability systems. And they were making a newsletter about what was happening and how they were going to fight the government because they kept getting their, their things cut. And so that was really like on the ground and telling the stories from people who are trying to change the world. And those are important stories and they, they often get glossed over. And so we don't get usually a sense of what it takes and what, ha what happens in social transformation. So it's both giving people a better 
representation of how things are happening, what's happening in these, in these places. And also, yeah, what it takes because it's not just electing someone and, and waiting and seeing what they do. It's pushing and it's important history, the document and lessons learned. Yeah, for sure. I remember talking to an organizer a couple of years ago out of the prairies and asking them what sort of helped propel them to keep fighting, despite the constant sort of negativity and experience of feeling like you're losing battle after battle after battle. And their answer really stuck with me because it was about how learning history and learning the history of the labor movements and the other movements that they were sort of joining made it feel like they weren't just this individual actor existing in this sort of sea of indifferent people, but actually a particular part in, in the responsibility to those who came before them and came after them sort of came from knowing that history and knowing about the movements. And so they were saying that like, the number one way they kept going was to learn about the movements that they were now being a part of and where they came from. And I thought that was really interesting. And it goes to show that if you don't have media telling a story, it can feel like we are just things that just come out of nowhere. And it can, that's really disempowering. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now with that, all that teasing, what is the grind? So launched in October of 2022, the grind is a, it basically looks like a tabloid newspaper and it is out every two months and it's in the subway and at 300 spots around Toronto. And it's a politics and culture magazine or newspaper covering Toronto, covering other levels of politics as well, other regions. So yeah, we, for example, put an issue out in June. That was our fifth issue. And it was about the mayoral election race. We covered the, what was happening in the race so far. We talked about the strong mayor powers. We wrote a sort of editorial, both about sort of how to think about the vote and then also about what to do, depending on who got elected, how to, to pressure those people to make you know, beneficial changes or in you know, some cases stop some of the worst policies they might impose on the city. And then there's articles about the attack on trans people and people who are fighting back in Toronto about, yeah, and, and then in the arts and culture section, we asked Miss Milano, DJ and producer in Toronto for their recommendations on queer musicians to listen to this summer. There was also an article, well, there was a, a lot of event listings about the summer so if you're listening to this, you might think this is pretty reminiscent of Nail Magazine from a while ago. And the, the story here is that Nail Magazine stopped printing in August of last year after having not paid their staff for months. And then they had declared bankruptcy and they were trying to sell. And here's a little scoop for you, Stefan, is that we actually looked into buying Nail Magazine. We gave it a, a try. We looked into it and because it's a, it was a huge institution in Toronto. It's, you know, it was out every Thursday for 41 years. I don't know if it was Thursday every week, but my whole life, it was Thursdays. 
and then it went monthly and then it, it disappeared from print. And so it was a huge gap. Didn't work for us to buy it. No one actually bought the print magazine. So there was this huge void. There's no politics paper in the subway system for those couple months. And so we put in the grind and then launched it in October. And we're, we've been the only uh, politics and culture magazine in the subway system and, and all over town. And the reception has been great. People really enjoy picking it up. It flies off the racks in the subway. I see people reading it in cafes and stuff. And lots of independent bookstores have it, which is really great. And we've started, we have a book section. So we had recommendations from staff at different book lists last issue, some novels they recommended. And yeah, we've like paid 50 people for their work, artists, photographers, writers, What's your experience with it? Have you seen it around? Yeah, I, I have seen it around. And honestly, one of the things that I like most about it is the fact that it's available in the TTC. The ability to have that medium available, especially when you still can't use your cell phone underground if you have either of the two major telecoms because they refuse to pay for it. It is amazing to have this kind of magazine or this kind of newspaper available i remember growing up like reading the metro and the i saw somebody post a a photo of the grind sort of folded up left on a subway seat and i remember that being like the number one get growing up was having a metro that was waiting for you when it got on the subway and so the fact that you have this print medium back and available back available to people who are in some ways a captive audience but also an audience that wants and craves real news instead of the things that they could be reading like to me the the, even the offering of solid journalism compared to what you might be scrolling through on your phone is a significant value add in a way to talk to people who might not be reached in any other way like i think print and in-person media is a something that gets to people who would not be caught by any number of you know facebook targeting or whatever else you're doing because they're just not and, in those places. And and in addition to that, is that with the the fight that the federal government's having with social media majors like Facebook, LT18, is that people are also not seeing news on their social media feeds. And so this is just, I, I'm not sure how long that's going to last. They're in a standoff right now. We'll see what happens. But for the time being, you know, being in print is is a great way to get to get your news because you're not going to see it scrolling on Instagram. Like a lot of our friends like Press Progress and The Breach and others have had their Instagram feeds almost really suspended. Well, they've been suspended. They can't post doing some workarounds. As I say, it's a, it's a battle. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But we're really happy to be in print. I like print. Um, I like the, the sort of randomness of it in a way where people can, as you say, be in a bar in Scarborough or a bookshop in North York and they'll stumble upon it, pick it up. We got a, an email from someone who was visiting from India and he said he picked up the magazine and was just like so glad to be able to learn about the city and what's happening here and feel connected. And, you know, lots of stories like that. We get we get really nice reader emails and, and tweets. Amazing. And so what would you say your goal is? with the grind the goal is 
Well, there's there's two answers. My my short term answer is to keep it alive because we're in a fundraising campaign right now. But longer term is to provide a consistent uh, source of journalism and coverage of the city, arts and culture, and politics from a, a grassroots perspective that's really connected in the city. And we want to provide a grassroots perspective and to make the, the media a bit more representative of, of the perspectives in the city and uh, what's happening on the ground. For example, we were the only print publication in the city that I'm aware of endorsed Olivia Chow for mayor. The Toronto Star went with John Torrey's choice and a bailout. And so that, you know, it, it showed that they're pretty out of step with the, at least the electorate, at least the voters. And there's a huge swath of the city that isn't represented and by, by the current dominant media. And the left perspectives especially are, are often left out. So we want to provide that and give a nudge, a bit of a thorn in, in the other media as well and sort of say there is a, an appetite for this kind of media and people resonate with with what we're saying and we so we want to provide that and keep keep at it amazing and so you referenced your current fundraising campaign so can you tell us about that yeah the the larger context here is that a huge number of alt weeklies across north america have gone out of they're they're out of print and so how do we survive in this new context where ad revenues aren't as high but there's still huge demand for the products so we do have advertisers we've had more advertisers placing ads and that's fantastic it's not covering all of our expenses yet so, and we knew this was going to happen. It takes a long time for a new publication to attract advertisers, especially the big advertisers. And so when we launched, we did a fundraising campaign and raised about $30,000. And that's carried us through a number of our, sh- you know, shortfalls on issues where, where we don't break even. And now this summer, we're raising money again. And this is expected. We're going to have to do this for a few years as we get up and running. And we're, we're aiming to raise $25,000 this summer and sign up 50 people as monthly donors as well. So we are currently at $4,000 and that's from 30 individual donors. And then we've had 25 people sign up as monthly donors. So this is, this is good. It's a good start. We still have a long way to go. and. Yeah, we need this money to be able to keep publishing the magazine and we want to do lots more coverage around the city. There's a huge shift, both like culturally and, and politically with the new mayor. It's a different spirit in the air. It's sort of less of the stale John Tory era. There's, a, there's an idea of possibility in the air, but there's, there's a lot of history of things not actually changing that much and people becoming complacent when a new progressive seeming politician comes into power. So we want to really cover this mayoralty and the activism that's happening and the people pushing for change and what life is like. And so to do it, we need, we need reader support. So if you are a fan of the grind, 
I really encourage you to check out our site at www.grindmag.ca and our link tree and, and our social media and make a donation. Consider becoming a monthly donor right now. If you have to decide between becoming a monthly donor or making a one-time donation, we're in a cash crunch. So a one-time donation is ideal. Um, and if you really want to keep supporting us, we are looking for about 25 more monthly donors. Amazing. And so it is a tradition with the show to give our guests sort of the last word on the show. So if there's anything that you would want people to know or to take away from this chat or from things you think generally, what would it be? That's a great question. I think what, what I'm thinking of is that there used to be a time when a, a huge portion of the population would pay a small subscription fee for a newspaper. I'm talking you know, decades ago. And the proportion of people who pay for media now is minuscule uh, by comparison. I can't remember. It's definitely under 10%. I'm not sure what it is. But what it means is that the, the media that does get funded, that does get reader, reader support, that's the stuff that's going to succeed. And so if you want to see media like the grind if you want to see media like the hoser the narwhal press progress it's really important to support it because otherwise someone else is going to support some other not as great media and that's what we're going to end up with and we're going to be frustrated so if you you know th there need to be bigger changes to the media landscape it's not just a matter of a few people funding it we need to to make you know bigger policy changes and, and whatnot. But in the current moment, reader support is just super, super important. And I will also mention, I'm, a, I'm on the board of CIUT, Community Radio in Toronto. And it's the same thing. It's, you know, we love the fundraising drive. Your show, you've done so much for fundraising at CIUT. Really appreciate that. And I know there's probably a, a fundraising drive coming up in the fall. So I'll give a really early plug for that as well. But yeah, find the media that you want to see. That's the that's my last words. Amazing. Yes, I believe that fundraising drive is coming in November, but you can donate anytime at CUT.FM. Thank you so much. This has been David Gray Donald, the publisher and editorial director of The Grind. The show notes will include ways to connect with Between the Lines to talk about the book. And The Grind is the name of it. The website is thegrindmag.ca. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much, Dave. Have a wonderful day.